Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents and may not be suitable for children. If you struggle with addiction, feel depressed or have suicidal thoughts and you need support, please contact your local crisis centre or reach out to a friend to ask for help. In 2013, The New Yorker would write an intimate portrait of tech entrepreneur and co-founder of Reddit, Aaron Swartz, calling him brilliant and beloved. But the people who knew him best saw a darker side. This, I suppose, is the actual problem, Swartz once wrote, long before his death. I feel my existence is an imposition on the planet. His girlfriend, Taryn Steinbrickner Kaufman, would tragically find Swartz dead hanging from a belt in his bedroom on January 11th, 2013, a young man pushed to the edge by an overzealous Massachusetts Attorney General who charged him with 13 felony accounts for having hacked the MIT database JSTOR. His staunch supporters believed it was an unfair punishment for a victimless crime, and the government was ruthless in their pursuit against him. Join us on a supernatural journey as we explore the short but brilliant life of internet prodigy and freedom of information activist Aaron Schwartz. We investigate the conspiracy theories surrounding his death, explore the dark side of justice and the government's lethal assault to convict an innocent man. This is Death by Misadventure. Schwartz was born on November 8, 1986, under the zodiac sign of Scorpio, in Highland Park, a suburb of Chicago, to Susan and Robert Schwartz. He had two younger brothers, Noah and Benjamin. The oldest of three boys, his grandfather ran a sign-making company, which his father later took over and turned into a small software company. Aaron was a gifted child and demonstrated immense potential that his parents encouraged. He spent most of his time playing with computers, and he was introduced to the internet in 1992, and spent much of his time online reading email, joining discussion groups, and surfing the web. What set Aaron apart from most kids was his intense curiosity and the desire to learn. He was always exploring and trying to figure out how things worked. The school he attended, North Shore Country Day School, was located six miles away from his home, so he didn't live near many of his classmates. Instead, he made friends online, and the internet became his primary social outlet to communicate and share ideas with others after school. In his personal blog, Aaron Swartz wrote that in seventh grade, his class was asked to do a project on the great men who made America. Other kids chose civil rights leaders, politicians, and even scientists. But not him. He was a big tech geek, and he chose his hero, Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web. One of Aaron's first assignments was to do some research and answer a list of questions provided by the instructor, one of them being, what did your contemporaries think of you? But a few of the questions, like, do you have any regrets, he couldn't answer himself. So he decided to reach out to Tim Berners-Lee to ask him personally. 
So with some trepidation, he carefully composed his email and sent it out, hoping for the best. A few days later, he received a short reply. Regrets? Tim Berners-Lee said, I have a few, but then again, too few to mention. However, Aaron's favorite answer was his response to one of the theme questions he asked. How do you think your work has shaped America? He replied, I was an Englishman living in France and working in Switzerland. It's got nothing to do with America. Aaron proudly reported this back to his teacher, complaining about his assignment's American centrism. When he was 12, Aaron's father took him on a business trip to MIT. During his visit, he had the opportunity to spend the day with MIT professor Philip Greenspern, who was teaching a class on the principles of building web applications. Aaron was so inspired by the class that he immediately went home and tried to make something. The first thing Aaron built was an online encyclopedia, similar to Wikipedia, that anyone could edit, but initially was only used by his parents and friends. The second project he made was to grab news stories from various news sites and combine them into one page. At the time, this was pretty difficult. Each news site had its own format, and you had to write software to read each one individually. However, that did not discourage Aaron, and it eventually became the spec, for which would become later RSS 1.0. Clearly, an exceptionally gifted young teen with no fear. In 1999, when Aaron turned 13, he created the website, theinfo.org, a collaborative online library. The info.org made Swartz the winner of the Ars Digita Prize, given to young people who create useful, educational, and collaborative non-commercial websites. However, the following year, much to his parents' dismay, bored, Aaron left high school and began studying computer-related courses independently in the Chicago area. During this time, Aaron helped to author the RSS web syndication specification that provided a standardized format to publish frequently updated works, such as blog posts, news articles, audio, and video content. Although he was quickly becoming a tech pioneer, lurking in the shadows would be a cloud of depression that would continue to haunt him. Everyone gets colored by the sadness, Swartz once wrote in his blog. You feel as if streaks of pain are running through your head. You thrash your body. You search for some escape, but find none. In 2002, at the age of 16, Aaron became one of the early architects of Creative Commons, an American nonprofit organization devoted to expanding the range of creative works available for others to build upon legally and to share. As a teenager, he helped design the code layer to their licenses and helped build the movement that continues to carry them to this day. His contributions to the internet continue to be prolific. During Swartz's first year at Stanford, he applied to Y Combinator's very first Summer Founders program, proposing to work on a startup called Infogami, designed as a flexible content management system to allow the creation of rich and visually interesting websites or a form of wiki for structured data. During this time, he continued to use his blog as a daily confessional, 
to write about the emotional struggles he faced. In January 2005, he would post how hard it was to remember names and faces. Foreign faces were impossible, he wrote, which presented a problem, he stated, since the only person who really expressed any interest in him was a cute Asian girl. She had asked him about a book he was reading one day, followed by some additional questions. After their brief conversation, she would always say hi to him when they saw each other at school. Aaron wondered what was wrong with him. He wasn't autistic, and he was perfectly capable of reading people's emotions and modeling their minds, but just couldn't remember faces. It bothered him deeply. After working on Infogami with co-founder Simon Karstensen over the summer of 2005, Aaron opted not to return to Stanford, choosing instead to continue to develop and seek funding for the project. When Infogami failed to find further funding, Y Combinator organizers suggested that Infogami merge with Reddit, which it did in November 2006, resulting in the formation of a new company called Not A Bug, devoted to promoting both products. As a result of this merger, Swartz was given the title of co-founder of Reddit, which currently has over 330 million users. However, in October 2006, based largely on the success of Reddit, Not A Bug was acquired by Condé Nast Publications, the owner of Wired magazine. The New Yorker would later write, Swartz moved to San Francisco to work at Wired's office, which was a condition of his company's sale. He hated San Francisco. It was too loud, the people were shallow, Walking around was terrifying to him. Aaron couldn't stand his new job. He would write the following post in his blog. The first day I showed up here, I simply couldn't take it. By lunchtime, I had literally locked myself in a bathroom and started crying. Swartz's Scorpio was a sensitive soul who was ruled by his emotions and had a dark side. After a couple of months at Wired Digital, he went on a trip to Europe. Then his colitis flared up painfully, and he hid out in Cambridge and contemplated suicide. He didn't tell anyone in the wired office why he was gone so long. Half annoyed and half worried, his boss checked his blog and found a chilling story about a person named Aaron who got fired from his job and committed suicide. She called the Cambridge police, who tracked him down to a local restaurant in Harvard Square where he was writing his blog. A few days later, he was fired. By this time, his brilliant mind continued to be restless, and his desire to help others led him to establish Watchdog.net. His role as an activist was in full swing. On December 27, 2010, Aaron filed a Freedom of Information Act request to learn about the treatment of whistleblower Chelsea Manning, the alleged source for WikiLeaks. However, the most karmic chapter in his life began in 2007, when he began dating a much older woman, Quinn Norton, a single mom. Soon, Aaron's life would take a deadly turn and slowly begin to unravel. Love is one of those profound emotions 
that most people will experience in a lifetime. It introduces you to feelings that you've never had before, for better or for worse. Even though your first love may not have lasted, it will be a part of who you are for the rest of your life. In spiritual terms, a difficult or complicated love connection is called a karmic relationship. Many people get involved in this powerful dynamic because we have to learn to love and respect ourselves, or we have unfinished business from a previous lifetime. Aaron Swartz and Quinn Norton had this type of karmic bond. The age difference between the couple was substantial. Aaron was barely 20 when they met, and Quinn was a 33-year-old mom going through a difficult divorce with British journalist Danny O'Brien. The couple came from very different backgrounds. Quinn grew up poor. Her father was a Vietnam vet who struggled with drug addiction and was sent to San Quentin when she was just 17 years old. This traumatic experience later inspired her to write about judicial reform and restorative justice. Aaron's childhood was more idyllic. He was born into a loving Jewish family in an upper-middle-class neighborhood and was encouraged to be intellectually curious. Together, Aaron a Scorpio and Quinn a Gemini were kindred spirits that was fueled by a deep soul connection. He loved her unconditionally, and his devotion carried her through a messy divorce. However, like most karmic relationships, one party tends to serve only their own self-interest and needs. Quinn was the taker, and he was the giver. It appears her daughter Ada helped to complete the special bond they shared. Quinn would write on her blog, Aaron loved her daughter so much, it filled the room like a mist. He was transported by playing with her, and she bored right into his heart. In his darkest moments, when Quinn couldn't reach him, her daughter Ada could still get through to him, even if only for a moment. Quinn would state together they loved the world, with the kind of love that grips and tears. They were fearsome creatures. Quinn, a writer-activist, was an outspoken voice for the open-source and free-speech communities, hackers, and people working with digital security and privacy. Most likely, Aaron's Scorpio nature was attracted to her smart and rebellious lifestyle, and together they explored life's mysteries. Of course, their love story would not have a fairy tale ending. The couple's relationship would soon be destroyed by an investigation. They had endured so much together, but it eventually ruined the love affair between two difficult people. However, it was much more complicated than that. This chapter in Aaron's life had many twists and turns. He was a risk-taker and was willing to roll the dice in his pursuit of freedom of knowledge. A few days before Aaron Swartz hacked into MIT and started downloading JSTOR in September 2010, he had turned up at a Google-sponsored conference on internet freedom in Budapest. He co-led a session on online free expression and enforcing ethics and accountability for corporations and governments. That evening, he went out to dinner with a group of activists, including many who were involved in the journal campaign. They spoke about the outrageous sum of money it would take to free up JSTOR for public consumption. It would be the spark that lit the match 
and set a forest fire in Aaron's life. Within a few days of returning back to the United States, he purchased a new laptop, logged into the MIT computer network, and began the liberation of JSTOR. On the night of January 6, 2011, Aaron Swartz was arrested near the Harvard campus by MIT police and a Secret Service agent. He was arraigned in Cambridge District Court on two state charges of breaking and entering with an intent to commit a felony. But instead of calling his lawyer when he got arrested, he called his girlfriend Quinn Norton instead. The fact that he made his one call to her made the DOJ believe she knew what his real motive was behind the MIT break-in and perhaps would lead the investigators to additional crimes he may have committed. It would be a mistake he would later regret. Articles in The Atlantic and in New York Magazine indicate that in 2011, Quinn Norton was pressured by prosecutors to offer information or testimony that could be used against Aaron in his trial. She would write in her blog that when she was first subpoenaed, Aaron was more worried about her than himself, and more importantly, they were worried about Ada, her seven-year-old daughter. She was the light of their lives, and they wanted to make sure the long arm of the law would not harm her. However, the problem was Quinn's computer. It contained interviews and communications with confidential sources for stories that she wrote going back five years. The subpoena didn't actually call for her computer, but if the prosecutor didn't think she was being honest, it was possible they would seize it. Quinn would get her own attorney, who advised her to cooperate with the prosecutor. She was granted immunity in exchange for her testimony against Aaron, although she believed it was largely not helpful to the case. In July of 2011, a grand jury indicted Aaron Swartz on four counts, including wire fraud, computer fraud, and recklessly damaging a protected computer. It added another nine counts in September of 2012. The internet whiz kid was now facing over 30 years in prison. The New Yorker wrote his family was horrified. His first lawyer told the prosecutors He felt that Aaron was a suicide risk, but they told his legal counsel that he'd be safe in jail. However, although his father thought that his son could survive prison, he couldn't live with the potential of a felony conviction. In the end, Aaron felt betrayed by his one true love. He told Quinn he needed to get away from her, and they broke up. Also, his parents never liked her, maybe because of their 13-year age difference, and that she was a divorced mom. Or perhaps they had a sixth sense of what deadly fate lay ahead for their son. Despite Aaron Swartz's public presence, He was small and frail and shy and often sick, and people wanted to protect him. Because he hated people talking about him, he kept his friends apart, the New Yorker would write. He was different with different people, and with the same people at different times, partly because he was young and was changing 
as most people change between the ages of 14 and 26. He was born with the life path number seven, the sign of the mystic. Many seven life paths feel as though they're old souls who are here exploring the material world. They are often on a different wavelength or operating on a higher vibration than others. They are bright, intelligent, and intense. Adept at solving technical problems and discovering things, they are seekers of truth and an explorer of life's mysteries, which I believe accurately describes Aaron Swartz. He was a teacher who was always happy to share his wisdom and would write on his blog, I think deeply about things and want others to do likewise. I work for ideas and learn from people. I don't like excluding people. I'm a perfectionist, but I won't let that get in the way of publication. Except for education and entertainment, I'm not going to waste my time on things that won't have any impact. I try to be friends with everyone, but I hate it when you don't take me seriously. I don't hold grudges. It's not productive, but I learn from my experience. I want to make the world a better place. Aaron was open about his battles with depression and would often describe how it felt to ride the roller coaster of sadness. Surely there have been times when you've been sad. Perhaps a loved one has abandoned you or a plan has gone horribly awry. Your face falls, perhaps you cry, you feel worthless. You wonder whether it's worth going on. Everything you think about seems bleak. The things you've done, the things you hope to do, the people around you. You want to lie in bed and keep the lights off. Depressed moods are like that, only it doesn't come for any reason, and it doesn't go for any either. Go outside and get some fresh air or cuddle with a loved one, and you don't feel any better. Only more upset at being unable to feel that joy that everyone else seems to feel. Everything gets colored by the sadness. At best, you tell yourself that your thinking is irrational, that it is simply a mood disorder, that you should get on with your life. But sometimes that is worse. In 2011, he faced a harsh punishment for trying to share his love of information with the world. He was indicted on multiple felony counts for downloading several million articles from the academic database, JSTOR. It's not clear why he did this, thinkprogress.org would write. He may have wanted to analyze the articles, or he may have intended to upload them onto the web so they could be accessed by anyone. It is clear that he did not anticipate the astonishing severity of the legal response. To complicate matters and add to his emotional turmoil, for several months in the first half of 2012, his mother was terribly ill. Aaron's father stopped working on his case completely to take care of her, and perhaps he felt helpless. Then, in late November 2012, he began to hit rock bottom. First, Aaron realized that his money was gone, and he was going to have to start asking people he knew to help him pay his lawyers. This was something he dreaded and didn't want to do. Second, while he had previously tried to keep the case quiet, in order to give MIT a chance to reverse its stance without embarrassment, now he and others recognized that this strategy had failed. For two years after his arrest, Aaron had managed to continue with his work 
and posting his most intimate thoughts on his blog, avoiding the crushing weight of imposition and dependency. However, his father had spent more time on his case than he had, and now the family was in crisis, with his mother ill and Aaron facing significant prison time. His friend Matt Stoller became deeply concerned about him and told his buddy Alec that he felt Aaron was a bit too calm before Christmas and thought he might try to kill himself. It was like he had one too many options. It was now officially on the table. The prosecution offered Swartz a plea bargain where he would serve six months in federal prison, but he rejected it. Two days later, after the prosecution rejected a counteroffer by his legal team, the following happened. On the evening of January 11, 2013, Aaron's girlfriend would tragically find him dead in the Brooklyn apartment they shared. He had hung himself. When she called the emergency services, she was screaming so loud that at first they couldn't hear the address. Aaron left no suicide note, but friends and loved ones have identified several possible reasons, including government prosecutors' desire to punish him to the fullest extent of the law. After his death, his girlfriend Taryn would write a heartbreaking post to dispel the myth of his depression. She believed Aaron's death was caused by an overzealous prosecution that would financially and emotionally bankrupt him over a period of two years. She would write, The Aaron I knew was sociable and excited to spend time with his favorite people, right up to the very end. On January 9th, two days before he died, he spent hours deep in conversation with our Australian friend Sam about the new organization Aaron was in the early stages of building. Sam asked him whether he had support, and Aaron replied that everyone who was competent enough to support him was, in fact, supporting him. Classic Aaron, pessimistic, arrogance, but also a reminder that he knew his friends were standing with him. A few days after Aaron Swartz's suicide, Ortiz issued a statement saying that her office had never intended to seek maximum penalties against him. Although her office had doggedly pursued him for two years as if he were El Chapo or a 9-11 terrorist. However, to add insult to injury, the same day Ortiz's husband Tom Dolan scolded Swartz's family for issuing a statement criticizing the prosecutors and MIT. He said, truly incredible that in their son's own obituary, they blame others for his death and make no mention of the six-month offer. Esquire writer Charlie Pierce replied, The glibness with which her husband and her defenders toss off a mere six months in federal prison, low security or not, is a further indication that something is seriously out of whack with the way our prosecutors think these days. Also, it clearly illustrates a lack of remorse or sensitivity towards the tragic loss of such a bright soul and the government's desire to make an example out of Aaron Swartz. In the end, his death prompted an outpouring of grief around the world. For many in the online community, he had been both a hero and a pioneer who tried to make the world a better place.
After Aaron Swartz's tragic death, his family and girlfriend released the following statement. Our beloved brother, son, friend, and partner, Aaron Swartz, hanged himself on Friday in his Brooklyn apartment. We are in shock and have not yet come to terms with his passing. Aaron's insatiable curiosity, creativity, and brilliance, his empathy and capacity for selfless, boundless love, his refusal to accept injustice as inevitable, these gifts made the world and our lives far brighter. We're grateful for our time with him, to those who loved him and stood with him, and to all of those who continue his work for a better world. Aaron's commitment to social justice was profound and defined his life. He was instrumental to the defeat of an internet censorship bill. He fought for a more democratic, open, and accountable political system, and he helped to create, build, and preserve a range of scholarly projects that extended the scope and accessibility of human knowledge. He used his skills as a programmer and technologist not to enrich himself, but to make the internet and the world a fairer and better place. His deeply humane writing touched minds and hearts across generations and continents. He earned the friendship of thousands and the respect and support of millions more. A live stream of his memorial service was held on Thursday, January 24th at the Internet Archive. Thousands of people watched and left comments on his remembrance page to celebrate his life, each one sharing their stories of loved ones they had lost and how much they appreciated his brilliance and contribution to the Internet. Taryn, Aaron Swartz's partner of 20 months, opened the service saying, the night before he died, we shared a grilled cheese sandwich. She talked about his love of cheesy foods and his excitement over the possibility of a $1 trillion coin and told the mourners, we must change the world by fighting for open access and destroying the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which she said allowed prosecutors to hound Swartz to death. Tim Berners-Lee called Swartz wise beyond his years before describing how surprised he was to learn he was only 14 when they first met. Aaron saw coding as a way to change the world, said Lee. We've lost an elder, he added, before concluding with the hopeful thought that perhaps if we come together and work towards Swartz's ideals, the world can compensate for his loss. The most heartbreaking comments were from his father, Robert Swartz. He commented on how Zuckerberg is idolized, but his son was labeled a malicious hacker, and the government's claims about Aaron were false. He added his son was killed by the government, and MIT betrayed all of its basic principles. Aaron could have done so much more, and now he's dead. He closed by saying, we must never stop trying to make the world a better place. To truly understand who Aaron Swartz was and his many contributions to the internet, 
We have to go beyond the headlines to appreciate who he really was. Clearly, today he has become a hero to programmers who want to live by the basic principle of don't be evil. Aaron had a unique ability to use technology to empower people and organize movements. One year following his death, many of his followers reflected on how the courage and vision had inspired them and changed their path in life by posting comments on his blog. On January 11, 2014, a preview was released of a documentary about his life called The Internet's Own Boy, The Story of Aaron Swartz. The film was officially released at the Sundance Film Festival. Mashable called the documentary a powerful homage to Aaron Swartz. The film makes a clear argument Swartz unjustly became a victim of the rights and freedoms for which he stood for. On the anniversary of his death, Simon Moss posted a comment on his blog. He wrote, In life, I knew Aaron as a friend of friends, a thinker whose questions would challenge and inspire all of us who work for a fairer world. Since he died, I've seen him everywhere, on the cover of the street magazines in Greece, in the speeches of campaigners in Britain, on t-shirts in America. I've seen Aaron inspire a movement, not of hackers and professionals, but of everyday people standing up for what's right. And I've seen the remarkable bravery and commitment of Taryn and Aaron's family, ensuring that his legacy lives on. In February 2015, the producers of the documentary Kill Switch, The Battle to Control the Internet, highlighted how Aaron Swartz and Edward Snowden's lives paralleled one another as they freed information for millions on the Internet. However, this ultimately put them directly in the crosshairs of the most powerful interests in the world. Sadly, Aaron gave his life for the freedom of information, and Snowden now lives in exile in Russia too afraid he will be arrested and spend the rest of his life in prison if he decided to return home to the United States of America. A longtime supporter of open access, Aaron Swartz, wrote in his guerrilla open access manifesto, Information is power, but like all power, there are those who want to keep it for themselves. Those with access to these resources, students, librarians, scientists, you have been given a privilege. You get to feed at this banquet of knowledge while the rest of the world is locked out. Meanwhile, those who have been locked out are not standing idly by. You have been sneaking through holes and climbing over fences, liberating the information locked up by the publishers and sharing them with your friends. But all of this action goes on in the dark hidden underground. It's called stealing or piracy, as if sharing a wealth of knowledge were the moral equivalent of plundering a ship and murdering its crew. But sharing isn't moral. It's a moral imperative. Only those blinded by greed would refuse to let a friend make a copy. However, the government underestimated the code of integrity that Aaron Swartz lived by. In the end, he found a way to lead this world an innocent man and to become an internet legend. After his death, the prosecution dropped all charges against him.
Our show notes, along with links to the news articles and interviews we used in researching and writing this episode, are available on our website at deathbymisadventure.co.uk. The show's hosts included the talented Eduardo Fahey in London, England, Tom Dre in Long Beach, California, and myself, I'm JC Nova, also based in LBC. This podcast was recorded at Skywave Studios in Hollywood by sound engineer Edwin Arzu and produced by Cosmic Media. A special thanks to Christopher Lang, our audio producer in Tucson, Arizona, who helps bring each episode to life. Kudos to Paulina of Upper Planet. She's responsible for the design of our super cool website. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Death by Misadventure Podcast. This has been Death by Misadventure. Thanks for listening.